I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listening to the Beyond Terrestrial Podcast, your one-stop shop for the outstanding, the unconventional, and the downright strange. Strap in because the boys are about to take a wild ride. I'm Funk Master B, setting up that tea for the duo of dumb foolery. Your hosts, Dan and Lee. I believe in aliens. I mean, in an infinitely growing universe, why would we be the only living species? Bigfoot, messy, all that stuff, it's got to be real. How are we to say that we're the only ones? It's just ignorant. I think aliens are not only from other planets, but they're time travelers. Back to Beyond Terrestrial, I'm Lee coming to you from the Haunted Barn Studios in the Bell Witch's backyard. As always, I'm joined by my friend, my colleague, my sometimes secret dream lover, Dan Martson. Dan, how you doing today? Lee, that is creepy, my man. <laughs> but, um, I'm Dan Martson. Uh, I am recording just down from the crossroads where Robert Johnson made his infamous deal with the devil. And Lee, we have a very special show today. Um, it is very long, and we are going to get right to it. Lee, what is the subject today? We are talking about the steamship or the t- steamboat Sultana. It's a boat on a river, ship on an o- on a, um, yeah. On the ocean. On the ocean. Yes. Um, this is a story that uh, deserves a lot more recognition that is not very well known, and that is very, very intriguing. Lots of different twists and turns. You guys are going to love it. We got an expert from the Sultana Disaster Museum, and we are going to introduce him right now. Welcome in, Beyonders, uh, to our interview with Dr. Lewis Intress, a history professor at Arkansas State University and the project director of the Sultana Disaster Museum in Marion, Arkansas. Dr. Intress, it's very good to have you on. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
So the the story of the Sultana, um, we are going to get into this. It is it is a tale um, that is precipitated by the events surrounding the end of the Civil War. So can you tell us uh, what was going on like right before the disaster and how it brought hundreds and hundreds of men uh, to an overcrowded steamboat in Vicksburg? Well, the month of April in 1865 was extremely, not only historical, but very, very busy. Uh, a number of uh, battles were winding down. And of course, on April 9th, uh, we had the surrender of Robert E. Lee to uh, Grant at, at Appomattox. And only a few days later, President Abraham Lincoln was uh, assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. Now, Lincoln died on the morning of the 15th, about 7 a.m. At that same time, steamboats were making their way down the Mississippi River in hopes of carrying large numbers of troops back to the north that uh, had been held in southern prison, prison camps, especially the two camps of Cahaba Prison Camp in just outside of Selma, Alabama, and the most infamous Andersonville Prison Camp in southern Georgia. There were most of the steamboats at the time uh, had been destroyed or, or were, were no longer being utilized, and the few steamboats that were still available to haul large passenger loads were fighting for the right to bring those those soldiers and and private passengers north at that time. One particular steamboat, the Sultana, under the command of Captain J. Cass Mason, has become infamous in a story that most Americans never heard for over 130 years. Yes. Yeah, the, um, oh, sorry to cut you off, Dr. Lewis, but... Um, I just want to touch on a couple things because I was talking with Lee earlier. We were, uh, I know Lee was very struck by the conditions at the Andersonville camp. Yes. Lee, uh, what, what did you think when you saw that? So, sorry, when, when I saw those pictures from the video that I was watching, it just struck me how similar it looked to, um, to like, uh, like Holocaust victims. And that, that, to me, that's incredibly sad, but it's also kind of indicative of, of how the Civil War conditions were in general. Um, that is correct. So. Uh, <clears throat> we have approximately 400 photographs of the prisoners who came from Cahaba and Andersonville camps, and they do look like Holocaust victims. Many of them lost more than uh, 40 to 50 percent of their body weight uh, Hundreds of them were not uh, uh, able to walk. I had to be at least 300 had to be carried onto the steamboat Sultana, uh, unable. They were not ambulatory. They suffered terrible privations of war. They not only these men not only fought in the great battles of the Civil War, but many were wounded. They were beaten, starved. They suffered from diseases, all the privations of prison camps in war. And of course, Andersonville was the most infamous. It was only open for 18 months. It was designed as a stockade uh, prison with no uh, cover from the elements, uh, open to the harshest of the winter, as well as the beating sun of the Georgia summers. And 
no cover for the men. And it was designed to hold about 13,000 prisoners at any one particular time, encompassing about 26 acres. At its height, over 33,000 men were uh, imprisoned there without adequate fresh water, medical attention. And so disease was rampant. Uh, there was uh, brutality, not only from their prisoners, but, the, the, but from among the prison, prisoners themselves towards each other. And in a matter of only 18 months, 48,000 soldiers were imprisoned in Andersonville and 13,000 died inside the prison. That's nearly a thousand a month. In fact, during the uh, late summer of 1864, during uh, July, August, and the first part of September, prisoners were dying at a rate of an average of 113 per day inside the prison. And the deaths were so great that they just put large wagons in the corners of the prison and as men died, their bodies were thrown up on board the wagons and they were hauled out and buried in mass graves. Of course, today, we, when you visit Andersonville Prison in Southern Georgia, it's a national historic site and it's also the site of the National Prisoner of War Museum and it's quite a, a location to visit in American history, but no one knew about the brutality for years after the war. <clears throat> And the circumstances in Cahaba prison were similar, not quite as bad, not quite as extraordinary. Uh, in Cahaba prison, not quite as many people died. Um, on the average, the uh, prisoners in those camps only had about six square feet of personal space. And the rations were down to a half a cup full of, of uh, um, corn rinds or bad pork, which would make you sick on a daily basis. And of course, as we know at Andersonville prison, uh, the commandant of Andersonville prison was the only man ever to be hanged for war crimes after the civil war. And wow. That is, that is a fantastic story. I mean, can, I can only imagine, um, you know, the deaths, the open latrines and then like Georgia in August. Yeah. Oh my, like it would be absolutely terrible. Um, but I had actually never heard of Cahaba, so that was another new thing I learned in this story of the Sultana. Um, there's so much uh, in this that has been uh, overshadowed by history, and we'll definitely get to that. But these prisoners were all released, um, or started being released, around March 20th, and they were sent out to uh, Vicksburg to a parole camp where they would eventually meet up with the Sultana. Now... Can you tell us about the steamship Sultana's history prior to 1865? Yes, the steamboat uh, Sultana was commissioned uh, to be built by Captain Preston Lodwick uh, in 1862. He was a steamboat captain uh, who uh, owned a, a large number of steamboats, uh, lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. He commissioned the Sultana to be built at the John Litherberry Steamboat Yard in Cincinnati, right along the Ohio River. The boat was 260 feet long. It was 42 feet wide at the, at the beam. It uh, accommodated 1,000 tons uh, in, in displacement. 
but it only drew 34 inches of water when it was at full speed. It was an efficient boat. Uh, it had a relatively new type of boiler system, a tubular boiler system on it, which uh, uh, was much lighter, less bulk and mass, um, but also produced greater steam pressure, indicating that it would give greater speed for the boat. And speed was of the essence uh, on the Mississippi. If, if you wanted to travel or you wanted to send your cargo from one city to another, you wanted to get there fast. And so speed was uh, of the essence and, and the, the Sultana was built for speed, but it was also built for some luxury. Um, on the second deck, it had 36 private cabins. Each would hold two passengers. So it could accommodate 72 private paying passengers in what were at the time luxury. Uh, between those two cabin lines uh, on the second deck was a, a very luxurious meeting and dining area with four large tables that could accommodate 24 diners at each. Uh, there were chandeliers, uh, painted leaded glass for, for sunlight. The, the, the back, uh, the stern end uh, of, the, of that deck was carpeted for the ladies to meet in. And uh, it was it was quite quite an exquisite boat for its time. However, uh, although it was built for passenger service and the cotton trade as well, uh, when it was launched in January of 1863, the Civil War was well underway, and so the United States government, the Union Army, uh, commandeered it quite often for the use to transport both. Uh, soldiers as well as war materials. And so after its launching in 1863, it was actually fired upon several times by the Confederate soldiers and encampments along the river and it suffered quite some serious damage to the upper decks in late 1863 and 1864. But by the end of the uh, by the end of the war, there were so few steamboats available to carry uh, people north, particularly soldiers coming back to the north from these prisons, that there was a lot of competition. Uh, one particular organization called the uh, uh, Atlantic Steamboat Line, Atlantic and Mississippi Steamboat Line, had a contract with the government to do, to do exactly that, to ferry soldiers and people to the north. One of the boats on that line was the Sultana, and it was captained by a man named J. Cass Mason, or John Cass Mason. He was only 34 years old, but by that time, he was a, a, a well-known uh, captain on the Mississippi. He had been on the Mississippi since he was a young teen. And he was known to be a good captain, knew how to run a boat, and he knew the Mississippi. However, as he got into financial difficulty, needing to make constant repairs to the boat, and for whatever other reasons, just, just his finances were not, not in good shape by the end of the war. He engaged in, uh, he engaged in some skullduggery and actually ended up entering into a uh, uh, conspiracy with uh, high-ranking Union soldiers, uh, a bribe, you might say, or kickback scheme uh, to put money in the pockets of some Union soldiers if they would give him the largest number or the greatest number of, of soldiers to be ferried to the North. At the time, the federal government was offering 
$10 for each officer and $5 for each enlisted man that a boat could carry back to the North. And so J. Cass Mason entered into an agreement with a, a most corrupt union colonel by the name of Colonel Reuben Hatch from Illinois, in which he agreed to pay Colonel Hatch a kickback of approximately $3 for officers and maybe a dollar and a quarter to a dollar and a half for each enlisted man. As a result, Reuben Hatch, Colonel Hatch, stationed in Vicksburg, Mississippi, um, put a few of his uh, junior officers uh, together and formed a cabal, which basically uh, agreed to overload the Sultana with significant overloaded numbers, while at the same time sending away other equally sized steamboats virtually empty. The yes, that was part of the story I found very fascinating. Um, Dr. Lewis, to cut you off a little bit, sorry. Um, Lee, now I know you were you were really blown away by this, that they just left uh, ships almost completely empty while com overloading the Sultana. Yeah, um, what blew me away is, from my understanding, uh, the one that, like, the, the, the captain that sent those ships away didn't actually know and wasn't in on the bribery part, um, which just completely confounds me on why he would make that kind of decision. Now, there was, there was a short little mention of, uh, of possible, um, uh, smallpox, uh, but I think smallpox was something that they worried about in everyday life altogether. So, uh, to me, it felt like, a, <laughs> it felt like, a, and for lack of a better way to say this, um, like, an excuse to get everyone on one boat. <laughs> yeah. An excuse to get everyone yeah. on one boat. And once again, from my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, um, he didn't actually know about the bribery and was not in on yeah. it. Well, yeah, I mean, incompetence, right? Uh, yeah. There was plenty of that, Dr. Lewis. Um, before we get back to you, I just, I am blown away by how um, so many factors led to this, like the North's strategy of total war in the South, where they tore up railroad lines, um, they sank uh, other boats, um, just to limit the South's supply uh, resources, and how that factored into this. Uh, the number of men... Uh, in these overcrowded camps um, and then when you throw in greed and good old fashioned graft um, and, and government incompetence we get this story um, Dr. Lewis can you speak to uh, you know the factors of incompetence and graft a little bit more sure uh, to touch on what Lee just mentioned um, there are a group of approximately five or six people who are instrumental and are at the heart of the story. A young Lieutenant William Tillinghast later testified to a commission which was appointed to investigate the Sultana right at the end of the war, almost immediately after the tragedy. Lieutenant Tillinghast testified that he had been offered bribes by representatives of the steamboat lines uh, to overload boats before and had, in fact, on this uh, on this event, at this event, right at the end of the war, uh, had been offered bribes and that um, these bribes led back to to Reuben Hatch, Colonel Hatch. 
and it is true about the about the the smallpox. What occurred was that um, rumors were spread along the Vicksburg dock that the two other steamboats that were available, the Lady Gay and the Pauline Carroll, uh, were likely tainted with smallpox. People who had carried smallpox were recently on board the boat, and it frightened most people from wanting to get on board the boat. So that's part of the story. However, there's, there's a couple of other very, very important people. A Captain Frederick Speed, who would ultimately be the only man court-martialed for this tragedy and this event, and William Kearns, another captain who was the assistant quartermaster. And then there's, uh, of course, Reuben Hatch, Tillinghast, and others. These individuals initially were given the orders and the authorization to take the roles of all of the soldiers, which were temporarily being held at a nearby uh, staging camp called Camp Fisk, sometimes referred to as Four Mile Camp because it was four miles outside of Vicksburg, Mississippi. Captain, uh, Captain uh, Williams was responsible for overseeing the loading of these of the boats in Vicksburg. However, he was detained and had been sent to Memphis. A young Captain Frederick Speed volunteered to take his place out at Camp Fisk. And Captain Speed began keeping the roles, which were basically keeping a list of the names and regiments of the soldiers that were being sent from Camp Fisk into Vicksburg to be loaded on board the boats. The soldiers were ferried from or taken from Camp Fisk into Vicksburg by rail with boxcars filled with just soldiers just standing in this, these cars as they were being taken in, into, uh, into Vicksburg. After several hours of taking the roles of soldiers being sent into Vicksburg for boarding aboard the boat, Frederick Speed took a break, whether he went to lunch or just stepped away from his post for a while, and another individual took his place. During that interim, when Frederick Speed was away from his post for about an hour, an additional train load of soldiers was sent into Vicksburg without proper listings or proper names and roles being taken. We do not know how many people were on board that particular train, maybe between 100 and 400 people. And so that is the source of the determination, or I might say the the indeterminate number of people who are actually finally on board the boat. But because Frederick Speed was responsible for taking the roles, um, he was eventually court-martialed for this entire tragedy, even though he was not even in Vicksburg with the loading of the boats. The the boats were, the boat, steamboat, was, was loaded with over 2,300, possibly 2,400 people. It was designed to carry only 376 people. Wow. It was approximately 1 14th the size, the actual size of the Titanic, which went down 47 years later. As far as displacement, it was basically 1 33rd, or only 3%, the mass and size of the Titanic. 
but approximately one fourteenth in total size. Yet it had as many, if not more, people on board than the Titanic, and as many, if not more, people died on the Sultana, even though it was so much smaller. What made this story so egregious is 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 partially that they overloaded this steamboat because of kickbacks and bribes to Union officers. They overloaded this steamboat nearly seven times its capacity. In fact, one survivor stated that they were they were driven on board the boat like pigs in a sty. And he also said that another said that there was not even hardly standing room. The boat was so overfilled that men in making the trip had to tie themselves to the railings to keep from falling asleep and falling overboard because there was little room to lay down and only those that could not stand and that were of either diseased or injured badly that had to be laid in a prone position had to take up that room and so everyone else had to stand for the entire trip. That was bad enough in itself, but what made it more egregious, what made this tragedy even worse is the fact that the boiler, the inside starboard, or what they then called the larboard boiler, the inside left-hand boiler, was known to have a very dangerous leak. On the upriver trip from New Orleans to Vicksburg, the uh, first engineer of the boat, a man by the name of Nathan Wintringer. Nathan Wintringer was an engineer, the first engineer of the boat, and he discovered a leak, a busted or ruptured seam on the inside boiler that was leaking steam and dripping boiling water. Very dangerous. This had caused eruptions or explosions in boilers on numerous occasions previously, and he was well aware of the danger. When they arrived at Vicksburg, he uh, went to see the chief boilermaker at, at Vicksburg, a man by the name of R.G. Taylor. And R.G. Taylor, after his investigation, stated that he could not safely allow this boat to go back out onto the river until it was repaired properly, which would take two to three days uh, of replacing that boiler. Of course, this would have cost J. Cass Mason this big load of men and what would have become maybe the biggest payday on the Mississippi River of any steamboat. He couldn't afford the loss of that trip because those men would have been put on other boats. We do not know why R.G. Taylor changed his mind. There's no evidence that he himself was bribed or, but within a matter of a few hours, he agreed to simply put a small plate over the rupture. He didn't even hammer it back into place and fit it properly. He simply put a small plate over the rupture to try to protect the, the, the seam from rupturing further and exploding and called it good. And many of the uh, survivors testified that they saw the repairs being made as they were being loaded on board the boat. So we yes. know the captain, the first mate, the chief engineer, the second engineer, uh, and several of the ranking officers knew that the boat was extremely dangerous, could possibly explode at any time, and by overloading this boat, put the lives of over 2,300 men and women in jeopardy. 
wow. they were willing to take this risk. And to put it succinctly, the first mate, a man by the name of Gambrell, was recorded in writing uh, by telling several soldiers that seeing what he saw of the boiler and knowing what he knew was going on, his quote was, if we make it to Cairo, Illinois, it will be the greatest trip ever made on Western waters in America. He didn't believe they'd make it. And of course, if we make it, yes, very crazy. There's so many logistical factors in this that seem just absurd that they would overload this boat. Um, it says, it said in the documentary we watched, remember the Sultana on Amazon Prime? Go check it out if you haven't. Um, there was one cook stove for over 2,000 people, there was no water. Um, I, of course, there's not enough bathroom facilities. I mean, everyone's just going over the side. I mean, it is absolutely insane the conditions that they set up. Uh, and that's that's not even considering the boiler, which is clearly about to fail. Yeah. <laughs> it's story, so terrible. The story is truly amazing. Uh, the, the men who were aboard the boat, of course, there were approximately... 2,200 soldiers on board the steamboat. There was somewhere between 30 and 80 crew members. It, it, it was supposed to have held 86 crew, but we're not exactly sure. We have the names of approximately 30 of them that were actually on board, we know and can prove. So between 30 and 80 crew members and somewhere between 80 and 100 paying passengers, all who have incredible stories that we are telling in our museum. But the story going up river is quite remarkable. Uh, even though the boat was significantly overloaded, the men were happy. Uh, stories of survivors telling, telling uh, the commission that men were singing songs, they were thrilled they'd been in battles, they'd been captured, they'd been imprisoned, they'd been brutalized and starved and beaten and you name, suffered every privation you can think of, but now they're going home. The war is over, they're going home to see their loved ones, many of them for the first time in several years. And so the, uh, the uh, air, the uh, atmosphere around the boat was that of joy, regardless of the conditions they were going home. When the boat stopped on April the 26th at Helena, Arkansas, April 26th of 1875, about 7, 7.15 in the morning, the boat uh, pulled up to a wharf boat because it couldn't pull up to the to a dock. There was, there was no deep water dock at Helena, Arkansas. So they had an old wharf boat attached to land. And then the steamboat Sultana pulled up to the wharf boat. At that point, at that time on that morning, a Civil War photographer by the name of T.W. Banks happened to be in Helena taking pictures of the spring flooding of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi at this time was way out of its banks by several miles. The town of Helena was actually flooded waist deep through most of the town. So he was taking pictures of the flooding of Helena, Arkansas, when the Sultana pulled up to the Helena dock. He stated in his memoir, that he had never seen a more overloaded boat in his life. And he set up a tripod and his camera 
and he took one of only two known photographs that are in existence of the Sultana. But his photograph, we believe, will become the most famous photograph of a steamboat ever taken in American history when America finally all gets to know the story because it shows the severe overcrowding of the boat. It's an incredible photograph. That was taken on the morning of the 26th. After a short layover of taking on passengers, dropping off some cargo uh, at Helena, the boat made its way upriver again and it arrived, it arrived late that evening in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, where it let some of its passengers off, including a 30-member uh, opera troupe from Chicago uh, that was booked <laughs> to do a performance in Memphis, so they got off in Memphis. But something that is of extreme importance here is that also at Memphis, the crew and some of the healthier soldiers unloaded a quarter of a million pounds of sugar. Now, this sugar was held in large barrels called hogsheads. A hogshead of sugar is a barrel about 50 inches tall and it holds 1,200 pounds of sugar. Ooh. There were 200 of these hogsheads in the, in the, in the hold. It took several hours to unload these hogsheads, thereby eliminating nearly a quarter of a million pounds of ballast in the bottom of the boat, which kept the boat upright. It's as a boat, uh, one thing, a matter of physics, as a boat, a steamboat is making its way upriver against a a current that is more than twice its normal speed. The current was being approximately nine knots at that time because the Mississippi River was so flooded. A boat would have to careen left to right at 45 degree angles as it makes its way up the river. And of course, being four decks tall without the ballast in the bottom of the boat in that hold and being overloaded on the top, it would have tilted at significant degrees right and left as it made its turn working its way up river. That's important because that ballast, that quarter of a million pounds of sugar in the hold, kept the boat from listing too far either right or left. Now, keep in mind you've got a boiler that's leaking steam and you've got a boat that is listing to the right and left making its way up river. Now, what is important about that is the shape and the design of the boiler. The boilers, there were four of them, and they were side by side, and they were interconnected, interconnected, so that water would flow, water would flow to the lowest boilers as the boat leaned or listed, leaving the upper two boilers exposed to the superheat of the coal fire underneath it. And then when the boat levels out or leans back to the other way, making another turn, the water flows back and hits that superheated iron. And you have these incredible surges of steam. So the boat boilers were certified safe at 135 pounds of pressure per square inch or PSI. Later experiments indicated that these surges caused by 
the removal of the ballast within the boat, causing the upper part of the boat to list further right and left, caused surges of steam to go up to nearly as high as 300 PSI, or nearly twice the safe level. And you had a very dangerous leaking boiler to begin with. Wow. That is that is very cool. That is one of the details that is not included in the movie. So thank you. Yeah. Um, that like the science behind that is fascinating. Um, boil, you know, a lot of people aren't very familiar with steam boilers anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, a very very cool thing. Oh, we know that we know that Captain J. Cass Mason, who was paying the bribes to overload the boat. We know that he was well aware of this danger because at Helena, Arkansas, when T.W. Banks was taking that famous photograph, Captain Mason sent several crew members through the crowd trying to get the crowd of passengers to disperse evenly around the boat. When T.W. Banks set up his tripod, he was on the landed side of the boat. And most soldiers, in 1865 had never had their pictures taken. And so everyone pushed to that side of the boat to try to get into the picture. And Captain Mason was concerned that the boat would list enough to expose the raw iron of the boilers to the fires and cause an explosion there. So he was concerned about it. There's strong evidence that he was concerned about an explosion in Helena, Arkansas. But they survived wow. that and began to make <laughs> their way upriver. Now, when they finished unloading people, the Chicago Opera Troupe at Memphis, they then moved about a quarter of a mile up the river, and they took on a, an, a, a thousand pounds of, of coal to make uh, as fuel to make the trip the rest of the way up the river to Cairo, Illinois. But by that time the ballast in the bottom of the boat had already been removed. And as they began to make their way upriver against the current and they were careening back and forth, the top of the boat was listing farther and farther to the left and right each time it made a turn, causing the boiler, the raw iron of the boilers to superheat until they only made it after removing the ballast in the bottom of the boat. The steamboat only made it seven miles upriver from Memphis once the ballast was removed before those boilers exploded. Wow. So this, I mean, this is really a perfect storm of factors. Um, the, the river's overloaded. The, uh, or the river is, has a high current from the spring runoff. The boat's overloaded with people on the top decks. It, its ballast has been removed from the lower decks. Um, the boiler is malfunctioning. Lee, it's like it's like this disaster was just made to happen, like it was faded. What, what well, do you think? I, I wouldn't call it faded. I would say it was irresponsibility that caused the disaster. But I was just doing a little bit of math while um, while the doctor was speaking, and so I had to Google because um, I'm not a maritime expert how fast a knot is. Because he mentioned um, the river was running at about nine to ten knots. A knot is about 1.5 or 1.15 miles per hour. So that means it was running at about mm, 10 to 11 miles an hour um, down. And they were fighting a current of about 10 to 11 miles an hour. Um, now, the average speed from the documentary that we listened to 
um, that they liked to run was roughly 10 to 11 miles an hour. So in in my eyes, that means he was doubling his he they would have to be doubling yeah. their average speed just to keep up that average speed. And from the understanding that I had, the the captain liked to keep that speed. So they may have been pushing that boat twice as hard as it normally would be, giving it what was it? Um, seven times the stress from weight from passengers, um, and then with no ballast, this was this was total and irresp- like just complete irresponsibility. imagine with me let me set the stage for you it's 1865 there are very few man-made lights outside of memphis proper it's 2 a.m in the morning in a spring a heavy spring rain and you're trying to make your way in the dark up the mississippi river which is running at flood stage And according to union records, the river is more than three miles wide at that point. And you're literally directing this boat into the darkness against all of, against the river, the darkness, um, the rain, and you've got all of these conditions on the boat. You've got a leaking, leaking boiler, a a loss or lack of ballast. significant crowding and overloading on the boat and the the soldiers themselves are still hopeful can you imagine what the chief engineer nathan wintringer the captain j Cass mason william gambrell the first mate and all of these men who knew the river and knew the boat and knew those conditions were dangerous what they must have been thinking like what the heck have we gotten ourselves into yeah, uh, and uh, of course, when the boiler exploded, when that one boiler exploded uh, seven miles north of Memphis, it 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 sent shrapnel directly into the two adjacent boilers on either side of it, causing them to explode. So you literally had three of the four boilers explode simultaneously. Uh, the, the the explosion was so loud and so profound that people back in Memphis, seven miles away, felt it rattle their windows and buildings and heard the noise. And you can only imagine what they thought has happened. Um, it's estimated that, and, and the, the steamboat was examined about a week later, the parts that were still sticking up out of the river uh, was examined about a week later. The initial explosion blew a hole from the main deck where the boilers sat on the main deck, the first deck. It blew a hole at a 45 degree angle back towards the stern of the boat, 
ripping out the second deck, the hurricane deck, which is the third deck, and the Texas deck, tearing out the pilot house and the first dozen or so of those cabins on the second deck, leaving a gaping hole of about 25 to 30 feet wide up through all three of the upper decks. Those decks being blown as, as such, the, the rest of the deck collapsed down into the hole like a slide, like slides. And with that crowded passenger list with all of that the huge crowd, those that weren't killed instantly from the explosion were falling down and sliding down into the fires. It must have been hell for them. It's estimated that maybe four to 600 people died almost instantly or within a matter of a few seconds. But then keep in mind the conditions. Uh, the boat loses all power. There's no light now except for fires and it's beginning to float back down river with the current under fire. The Sultana was a twin side wheeler, meaning it had a pit paddle wheel on each side of it. As the fire spread to those, one of the paddle wheels fell off into the river, dragging much like a catamaran would. So the boat began to not only burn, but it began to turn as it drifted, turning in circles as it drifted down the river because of the drag of that, of that paddle wheel housing in the water. And as the boat was turning and drifting down river, the wind, of course, would change, sending the fire both directions. It was just a matter of moments when the entire steamboat built of a very cheap plank plywood and, and untreated lumber um, and old paint it was only a matter of a few moments when that entire boat was totally engulfed in a, a conflagration of flames. And it's estimated 10 to 12 minutes, everyone on that boat, nearly 2,400 people were either dead or in the Mississippi River. And wow. most, people couldn't, most people couldn't even really swim well in 1865. And so, more than, you know, maybe three or four times more people drowned or died from exposure to that frigid water, uh, the cold, the current, uh, than actually died on the explosion and fire. Right. Well, and many of the passengers were emaciated POWs. Correct. So Correct. they had that against them, too. I mean, um, I also saw that because the boat had been so overloaded, a number of the soldiers had used the fire buckets for collecting water, and there was absolutely no way to fight this fire once it started. That's correct. There, there were no, there was no real way to fight the fire, nor were there any real flotation devices for anyone to use. And wow. a steamboat with nearly 2,400 people on board it only had one small yawl, which is a small boat on the back end of on the stern end of, of the boat which was used to go to and from the boat to the land and it only had one lifeboat on the entire boat so one <laughs> lifeboat that's that uh that would hold maybe a dozen to 14 people and one small wow. yawl that would hold six people so if you if you had these two small boats which you might want to call lifeboats uh could maybe if they were even if they had been available you might have saved 20 people with those two small lifeboats, but there were 2,400 people on board. Wow. So it's, uh, there is no record 
There is no record of any survivors being picked up out of the river or floating up on the land on the banks after 12 hours. So within 12 hours, uh, pretty much everyone that died was had already died. And there were about 800 or so survivors that were picked up out of the water by other boats, by boats that came out of the Memphis docks. Um, we have literally hundreds of stories that were told that we have the records of from men aboard those boats who pulled bodies up out of the river and had their the flesh, they were scalded with steam, flesh literally peeled right off of their arm, off of their arms and legs when they tried to lift them out of the water. Um, they were, these 800 or so survivors were taken to five different hospitals in Memphis and uh, later between one and 200 of them uh, perished from their injuries and are now buried. Uh, maybe as many as 200 are buried in the National Cemetery in Memphis today. Uh, of course, no records of their names, who the bodies were. So uh, they're buried as unknown soldiers in the National Cemetery in Memphis. And as a result of that, and all of those Sultana soldiers, the National Cemetery in Memphis is second only to Arlington National Cemetery as having the most unknown soldiers. And they're most wow. all, they're mostly all from the Sultana. That is that is crazy. Um, the stories of the survivors and the rescue and the aftermath, the immediate aftermath in Memphis are fascinating. Um, the city of Memphis uh, ran out of coffins. Yes, it they did. they couldn't put everyone in a casket. Um, it was um, there was one survivor who floated most of the way to Memphis who alerted a lot of these ships. Um, a man by the name of, um, was it, uh, Wesley? Oh my gosh, I had it in my notes. Uh, um, Wesley Lee, yes, Wesley Lee. Um, so his story is fascinating. Um, one of the best ones, though, Lee, was uh, in the do is featured in the documentary, a uh, private William Luganville. Um, <laughs> there was a seven-foot alligator that had been yes. loaded onto... <laughs> the boat i guess as a spoil of war a symbol of the south i don't know it was um, uh, it was actually the crew's pet uh it was, oh, he killed their it was pet. A, a seven, yeah a seven foot long alligator um which by the way uh stuffed alligators are our 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 museum's mascot we have alligators there that you know stuff alligators but oh that's cool the, the crew had a the crew had a seven foot long alligator as a pet and when there were no passengers on board, they would they would take it out of its crate, a large wooden crate, and they would tie it off on to four different areas uh, on the bow of the boat, and they would let it sun itself out there. <laughs> but when there were passengers on board the boat, they they used ropes to pull it back into its crate, and then they would put the the, the top of the crate on and, and literally box it up and slide that crate into the wheel housing, the, the, the paddle wheel housing, and hide it. And that's where it stayed. Well, Private Lugenbill from uh, the Ohio 115th Infantry, uh, he was aware that, that that crate was in there. And later he said that he didn't know how to swim. And so that when the explosion occurred and he, he was afraid to jump in the river, he and another individual 
through the slats, the wooden slats on the on on the uh, on that crate, they used a bayonet to kill the alligator, drug it out of the box, and then slid the box over and dumped it into the river and jumped in to float on that box on that on that wooden crate to safety. Well, the other man evidently for some reason became detached from it and he drowned and Lugin Bill floated to safety. Um, he was hospitalized for a while, but when he got home uh, to Ohio, um, he made a wooden curio box, which is about the size of a cigar box. It's a beautiful box. It's handmade of wood with a nice latch uh, on it. And on the top of that box, he carved his name, William Lugenbeel, and then he carved the picture of an alligator is carved into the top of the box and underneath the alligator he carved the words saved by a alligator and in that in that personal box uh, when we were able to to uh, acquire it uh, from the family uh, descendants of Lugin Bill uh, in that box we found a, a, a glass a small glass bottle of dirt and he had written on there and, and taped to it dirt from Andersonville prison. So we have a little bottle of the actual dirt that he brought from from Andersonville prison. We also have a couple of buttons from his military tunic. We have a beard comb that he actually made. He carved out of a piece of wood while he was in prison, carved a comb for his beard uh, and a couple of Civil War medals, uh, uh, participation medals that he had. And those were all in that curio box. We we have that, uh, that box also in the uh, in the museum, but they're, they're, the amazing thing are the stories, the stories of the survivors and the stories that they told us that they testified to uh, later, uh, letters that they wrote home to their families. Um, many of these we're well aware of, and we, we have so much information as to what really happened from firsthand witnesses because of another Ohio private by the name of Chester Berry. Chester Berry survived several of the major battles and was captured and imprisoned in Andersonville prison. After the war, uh, surviving battles, surviving prison, surviving the Sultana, after the war, when he got home, he felt that he had survived so much that the Lord had something planned for him. So he became a minister and for the next 30 years, he ministered to the people of his region uh, as their local preacher. In 18, the 1870s, he began writing letters to men who he knew had survived the Sultana, asking them to send back to him their personal memory of that night and what happened. And in 1892, he published a small book. There are very few of them left. I have an original here. He oh, published wow. this book in 1892. It's called The Loss of the Sultana and Reminiscences of the Survivors. And in his book are the personal memories of that night the memoirs of that night of 124 survivors, each telling their own story in their own words. And these are these stories are remarkable. Uh, there are stories of courage, 
of selflessness, of true heroism, uh, of horror, stories of horror, of the experiences that these men encountered uh, that night. And that became the basis of our desire to create a museum to finally tell this story. And the reason we had to is because for nearly 130 years, from very shortly, within a matter of months after the Civil War, and for 130 years, almost nothing was ever written or spoken or told of the Sultana. As these men died off over the years, the next generations didn't know the stories. And so the story was lost in our history. You would think that we would know a lot more about it because the newspapers should have reported that immediately. All the great newspapers in America at the end of the war would have reported it. But you must keep in mind what the conditions were in America. This tragedy occurred at two o'clock in the morning on April the 27th of 1865. But think of what happened on April 26th, just the day before the train carrying Abraham Lincoln's body was traveling across the country and all the newspapers were covering that story. Millions of people were standing along the rails wanting just to see the train. And they were covering that story on all the front pages. Also on the 26th, John Wilkes Booth was captured and killed. The assassin of Abraham Lincoln was captured and killed on the 26th. That was front page news in all the newspapers and wires in the North. Thirdly, on the 26th also, the last great army of the South, Joe Johnson's army, surrendered. They had continued fighting until, until April the 26th when they finally surrendered. That was news. But maybe just as importantly as all of those three things and the news being remitted around the North, is consider the fact that this happened at Marion, Arkansas, across the river from Memphis, Tennessee, where all the bodies were floated up and stacked like cordwood along the docks because they ran out of coffins in the city of Memphis and the hospitals were filled. The most important thing likely is that there was no telegraph. All the telegraph and the rails were all down in the south. There was no telegraph to the north. So the only way to get news to the north was by steamboat. And there were no steamboats heading up river for the next few days. And those soldiers who finally got to the north simply wanted to forget what they had experienced. The newspapers of the north were, were uh, telling the stories of the end of the war. Over 650,000 men had died in the war and another 2.4 million men were maimed and wounded in the war and massive casualties stories of great battles where thousands of men were were wounded and killed in a single day uh, these stories desensitized people in the north they didn't want to hear any more of those stories and the newspapers quit publishing stories of massive death and so the major newspapers all up and down the river and into the north, with the exception of Memphis, of course, and St. Louis, didn't even carry the story of the Sultana for 
several days, we have more than a dozen authentic original newspapers from April and May of 1865 in our museum. And when you do find a story about the Sultana in some of those newspapers, you'll see that the story of the Sultana was published three or four days or three or four weeks after the fact. And the story is only maybe two or three inches of, of print. And it's on page eight, 10 or 12 of the newspaper. And one particular one I always bring to mind because it's on page eight.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.